I really don't know how many, but I know how many I met, and that was a majority of the men that I met in the service were opposed, but really didn't know how to voice their opinion. Have you given much thought to the penalty of being a AWOL? Yes. 1968 was the turning point. By then, America had over a half a million troops in South Vietnam. But during the Lunar New Year holiday called Tet, the enemy, the North Vietnamese and National Liberation Front armies, launched an offensive that overran the entire country before being pushed back. The Tet Offensive revealed that the enemy had widespread support from the Vietnamese people, and America was mired in a war it couldn't win. And with soldiers beginning to question the war in the wake of the Tet Offensive, thousands began going AWOL or absent without leave. Many found their way to San Francisco, where a series of events brought the emerging GI anti-war movement onto the national stage. We joined together in July 1968. We took sanctuary in a church and chained ourselves to ministers. We essentially called the press and said to them, we're not going to Vietnam. We're refusing our orders and in fact we're resigning from the military. Come and get us. The fact that it took them three days to decide how to deal with this tactically, that was great. They had nothing to lose. And it had no idea what was going to come. And that's a free place. It's a really free place, you know? You, you, <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen, you know where you're going, but you know what you're doing. And that was my introduction to the uh, San Francisco Presidio Stockade. The population fluctuated, usually upwards. It was built, I think, and could hold like maybe 60. And there was uh, sometimes double that in there. Uh, overcrowded, toilets backed up, uh, food was short, guards were mean. That was, wasn't any fun. With the Nine for Peace held in military prisons, soldiers throughout the Bay Area began planning for the first anti-war demonstration in the country organized by GIs and veterans. I was an, a member of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. We got together a number of times and talked about how we were going to organize active duty GIs to go to the peace demonstration. And then I remember also hearing about the B-52 bombers that were dropping leaflets on Vietnam, urging the Vietnamese to defect. And I thought, well, if they can do it overseas, then we can hire a small private plane, load it up with leaflets, and drop the leaflets on military bases in the San Francisco Bay Area. Thousands and thousands of leaflets. At one point, I know we were a little concerned about getting shot down, but nothing happened. Evidently, they landed pretty accurately. That's what they testified at the court-martial. And on my way driving into the demonstration, I decided I was going to wear my naval uniform. And my opinion was fairly straightforward. It was if Westmoreland could wear his uniform, being for the war and talking in front of Congress, then as an active duty person, I certainly had the same rights that he did, and I could wear my uniform protesting the United States involvement in Vietnam. Susan Schnall was court-martialed by the Navy for making a political statement while in uniform. And following the march, 
Four AWOL GIs turned themselves into the Presidio Army Stockade, where Keith Mather was being held. So um, I'd been assigned kind of by the movement people to go into the stockade and find out what was going on because they had, they had shot this prisoner and killed him. For 19-year-old Private Michael Bunch, life in the Army had been a little more than a series of AWOL violations. His last stop was here, the Presidio Stockade, where he was fatally shot last Friday while trying to escape from a work detail. But the guard shot him and killed him, you know, point blank. And his only crime was uh, not wanting to be there and um, going AWOL. And he, cut, he was cut down at a real young age and uh, for no good reason. Not unlike a lot of his brothers uh, in Vietnam, you know. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> so we reacted. Uh, viscerally and uh, with anger and disgust and outrage. We tore that jail apart. We ripped the wires out of the walls. We ripped the squawk box off the wall. But, and then things started to calm down because we started to plan. We came to a decision that the best thing we could do was to have some kind of a demonstration. And it was at the roll call formation we had a signal, and that was when we were supposed to break ranks, and we did, and then we walked over here and sat down. At a certain point, Commandant came out and read us uh, the Mutiny Act, and we just kept singing louder and you know, kind of linked arms and sing and sing. We were scared, man. I'll tell you, we were really scared. But we had them right where we want them. They were finally listening to us, man. That's the first time I can ever remember anybody listening to us while I was in the military. The commanding general of the 6th Army, which was the jurisdiction, he said that they thought that the revolution was about to start and that they really had to set an example, you know, come down hard, and we were the guys that they decided to do that with. And they did. I mean, we, you know, we were on trial for our life. You know, I kind of came in as an AWOL, and, uh, you know, within two days of hitting the stockade, I was, uh, you know, I was facing the death sentence for saying that we should overcome. Nationwide support for the Presidio 27 grew, the GI movement had arrived. All right, and welcome back. That was the first 14 ish minutes of Sir No Sir, which is a documentary that came out in 2005. You can stream it for free on YouTube. There's also the DVD available at the San Francisco Public Library. I'd imagine other public libraries where you are. And I believe there's extra footage on there. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm going to check it out. So there's so much to get to. And I also, there's also so much that we don't know. And that I feel like that's been a common recurring theme on this show that I think I've maybe even more recently just become so aware of just how much misinformation is taught how much propaganda there is growing up in this country and really wanting to seek out the truth and a people's history and also questioning the powers that be and their actions and how not only do they control the narrative, but they control a lot of just the behind the scenes. And if we don't know what's actually happening, it's difficult to form an opinion and then to take action and then also just to make sense of everything. So someone did post this, which was from NPR, which I know some folks have. I, I would imagine that folks can criticize almost anything, and they're, they're, uh, I don't know how else to say it. So I appreciate some stuff NPR does, and also I'm critical of others, and I think it's also just crucial to, of course, question what we hear. And this 
was posted last early last year in February from NPR, uh, how the CIA overthrew Iran's democracy in four days. And there's a lot that I, I don't know, so I will be also listening to this just to share for share. Is that the right word? I don't know. Perhaps to educate myself a little bit more, a lot more. And hopefully also just to contextualize how the U.S. has constantly gone abroad and just fucked things up and caused a lot of harm. And that's no different than what's happening right now. So you can find this at npr.org. Um, it's about 38 minutes. I'm not sure how much of it I'll play. I might play all of it. We do have the time. Or maybe I'll play a little bit of it. And if you're interested, you can hear more. So, again, if you go to NPR and then type in the C how the CIA overthrew Iran's democracy in four days. And this talks about August of 1953 when the U.S. overthrew Iran's democratically elected prime minister. And it's this is through NPR's, uh, they have a history podcast called Throughline. So I'll be playing this for a bit and we'll be back uh, perhaps with some music afterwards. Hey there, Up First listeners. It is Saturday, not a weekday, and we've got a bonus episode for you today. This month marks the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, which led to the overthrow of Iran's head of state, the Shah, a hostage crisis at the American embassy, and Iran becoming an Islamic Republic. It is cited as the year Iran and the United States became enemies, but that animosity actually has earlier roots. In this episode of Throughline, a new history podcast from NPR, hosts Ramtin Arablouei and Rund Abdel Fattah explore the U.S.'s role in the 1953 coup in Iran. August 15th, 1953. Shortly before midnight in Tehran, Iran's capital city, the air was thick with anticipation. Something big was about to happen. The elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, was sitting at home, waiting. He knew something was coming. And he had no idea if he'd still be prime minister by morning. So with each tick, tick, tick of the clock, he knew that the future of Iran was at stake. One truckload of presidential guard soldiers were going to Mossadegh's house at midnight. Their mission was simple. Go to Mossadegh's house in the middle of the night. Knock on the door. Tell him he's fired. Mossadegh would then protest, undoubtedly, and say, you can't fire me, I'm elected. And at that point, you would arrest him. That failed because Mossadegh found out about the arrest. News of it leaked out. Then uh, there was a bit of panic among the army that was supposed to come out and support the arrest of Mossadegh. The phone lines were supposed to be cut. They were not cut. So there were a number of missteps that took place. And when the soldiers arrived at Mossadegh's house to arrest him, other soldiers jumped out of the woods and arrested those guys. Mossadegh's forces had foiled the coup attempt. He would stay prime minister. But little did he know, that night was just the beginning of a much bigger battle to come. And it would change the future of Iran and America. Iran's British-hating Premier Mossadegh arrived in Cairo, where... Former Premier Mossadegh's ruined house is a mute testimony to three days of bloody rioting culminating in a military fury at the force. For the first time now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. You're listening to Throughline. Where we go back in time... To understand the present. 
Hey, I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. And welcome to the first episode of Throughline. I'm not going to lie. I'm still a little bit shocked that they gave us a show. <laughs> I know. I can't believe we're here. <laughs> but we're really excited and really glad that you decided to join us for this ride. Yeah. Because Ramtin and I have been talking about this for a while. Um, like a lot of you, we're news junkies. And we were just pretty frustrated with the lack of historical context around a lot of the headlines we were reading. And we would end up in these Wikipedia wormholes trying to figure out the history behind things. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to create a show where you, the listeners, and us could go on this journey every single week and become better informed about the world around us. And do it in a way that wasn't boring. <laughs> yes, exactly. So in this first episode, we're going to take you to Iran and the story of four days in 1953. All right, Ramtin, you were born in Iran and you've spent a bunch of time there. So I'm curious, how much had you heard about this American coup growing up? I definitely heard stuff about it, um, especially from my father, um, who would remind me all the time, like, the only reason we're here in the U.S. is because what the U.S. did to our democracy in 1953, right? And um, I would always just kind of, like, brush it off, like, whatever, that couldn't have happened. It's just, just like Iranian conspiracy theory stuff, right? But as I grew up, I realized the U.S. actually did interfere in Iran's politics in 1953. I'm going to be honest, like, I didn't have much of an idea about this going into the episode. And it's like a, a really big, shocking thing to not have much of an idea about. Um, because I always thought that 1979 was the real pivotal moment, right? Mm -hmm. That the Iranian revolution that happened that year and the hostage crisis at the American embassy, those were the things that really set the tone for like this very tense relationship between the U.S. and Iran. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, why would you or any other American think differently, right? Because 1979 was such an important year. But 1953 is really when it all goes down. Doesn't it suck that your dad was right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really does. It does. Okay, I want to get into it. It's a great story. So we're going to take you back to that pivotal moment more than 65 years ago to understand what happened during the coup. Why the U.S. made that decision. And how this event redefined the U.S.-Iran relationship and changed the world. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover, who believes innovation and good ideas can come okay. from anywhere. I'm Discover gonna, uh, is one of the silence it while... Uh... It's playing ads. That's that's all right. Again, we're listening to uh, NPR, how the CIA overthrew Iran's democracy in four days. And I'll, I'll do a little plug for the radio station while they're doing a plug for theirs. Mutiny Radio, 21st in Florida and the Mission. If you get by on dues and donations, please Venmo us at Mutiny Radio. If you want to support this show in particular, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. I appreciate all the folks out there who have been donating over the years. Uh, I have a lot of passion about this show and think it's really important. So if you're able to donate a buck or two, you can also Venmo me, Roman-Rimer, and that's R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. Follow me on Twitter, at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And similar to this show, I mostly retweet and share a variety of sources and spread the word. So thanks so much for tuning in. The mood was electric. Music blasting, booze flowing, everyone celebrating a job well done. Now, remember, this is 1953, so there were no breaking news alerts, no email, no good way to deliver information fast. So as far as these guys knew, the coup had gone off without a hitch. 
And there was one guy who was especially happy, Kermit Roosevelt. So Kermit Roosevelt uh, was chief of the CIA's Near East and Africa division. Like many of the figures in the early CIA, he had been born into privilege, gone to Ivy League schools. His grandfather had been Theodore Roosevelt. Distant relative of FDR as well. He was called in to help facilitate this transition. So on July 19th, 1953, Kermit Roosevelt crossed over into Iran. This is Stephen Kinzer. He wrote a groundbreaking book on this coup called... All the Shah's Men. And Sanam back here. Oh, okay, now you can hear me. Hello. A research fellow at Chatham House in London, where she leads the Iran Forum Project. And they were our guides through this story. Okay, so Kermit Roosevelt entered Iran on July 19th with a pretty big mission ahead of him. Stage a coup to get rid of Iran's prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. And we'll explain why in a bit. But the first question Roosevelt had to answer... I've asked myself this question. ...was how. So you're sent into a foreign country and your assignment is overthrow the government. What do you do? Like, what do you do on the first day? Nine o'clock, you get to the office. How do you start? Even though the CIA had devised a plan for Roosevelt, no one was sure it would actually work. It was suddenly up to Roosevelt to destabilize a whole country. Step one. Seize control of the Iranian press. Basically buy them off with bribes. Turned out that the press uh, was quite corrupt. And soon enough, Roosevelt had columnists, editors, and reporters from most of Iran's newspapers on his payroll. Then, anti-Mossadegh propaganda began printing everywhere. Mossadegh was a Jew, a homosexual, a British agent, anything that they thought would, uh, would outrage people. There was such an appetite for these stories that Iranian journalists just couldn't keep up. So Roosevelt had to recruit CIA agents back in Washington to write some of the articles for the Iranian press. In fact, one of them later wrote a memoir, and he talked about how bizarre it was. At the CIA, you had the people plotting the Iran coup, and then you had analysts on the other side who weren't aware of the covert action. And he said, I would write an article about how Mossadegh was an atheist and he hated God. And uh, then a couple of days later, a guy from the other side of the hall in the analysis division would run over to my office holding up an Iranian newspaper and saying, wow, you won't believe how the newspapers in Iran are denouncing Mossadegh. Look what this article. And I couldn't tell him, I wrote that article. Step two, recruit allies on the ground. Most importantly, the Islamic clergy, or mullahs, who held a lot of power in Iran. Kermit Roosevelt made strategic payments to a number of important mullahs uh, in exchange for them delivering sermons denouncing Mossadegh from the pulpit as against God and irreligious. Step three, get Iran's king, the Shah, on board. And uh, convince the Iranian Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, that Mossadegh was a threat. This part took some persuading, though. Yeah, because in theory, at least, the Shah and the prime minister were meant to work together. But there was a lot of tension between them, because for decades, Iran's parliament and Shah had a tough time sharing power. It would be a big deal for the Shah to help overthrow the prime minister. But Roosevelt saw an opening to turn them against each other. That included bribing the Shah's sister in exchange for her help convincing the Shah to sign on. And there are reports that a fur coat was even part of the deal. But that tactic failed. Eventually, Roosevelt took matters into his own hands and began meeting with the Shah almost every day, at midnight, in a taxi cab, always in a different location. 
During these late night meetings, Roosevelt managed to convince the Shah that Mossadegh was a threat. And so the Shah agreed to the coup. And finally, step four, go to Mossadegh's house in the middle of the night, arrest him, and consolidate power in the hands of the Shah, who was more friendly towards the West than Mossadegh. But remember, the coup attempt failed. At this point, you're probably wondering why the U.S. went to all this trouble, sending Roosevelt to Iran, having him stir up chaos in the country, and ultimately trying to carry out a coup. Why were they so hell-bent on getting Mossadegh out of power? Well, the truth is, the U.S. was dragged into the situation by Great Britain, all because of one thing. A fifth of the world's oil supply was cut off, and nationalist feeling ran high against Britain and the Western democracy. We sometimes say that countries are blessed with resources, but sometimes resources can be a curse, particularly if you're a country that's weak, because there are always strong countries that want to come and take what you have. And Iran was cursed with a lot of oil. Oil was discovered there in 1908, and almost immediately, Great Britain took an interest. And at that time, Britain was the world's biggest superpower, so they decided to strike a deal with the Iranian Shah, and they needed a lot of oil. This deal between the British and Iran was completely one-sided. Great Britain was taking well over 80% of the revenues, while Iran was receiving about 10 to 12% of the revenues from its natural resource. Wait, wait. A deal like that makes no sense, though. Why did Iran agree to that? Well, yeah, it makes no sense unless you're in desperate need of money. Hmm. And Iran's government in the early 20th century was desperate. Iran, during the early part of the 20th century, was still ruled by the old Qajar royal dynasty. This was a very corrupt dynasty, and it supported itself by selling off anything of value in Iran. They sold off the transportation industry, the tobacco industry, the caviar fisheries. They even sold off the country's treasury and banking industries. It was basically a free-for-all, and the British were first in line. Oil was by far their most valuable acquisition. And here's a fun fact. The company that controlled all of that oil was originally called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which would later become... Every day, BP supplies the fuel and lubricants that start the engine... Oh, British Petroleum. So this was obviously very lucrative for them. Very lucrative. And during World War I and II, Iranian oil pumped life into the British war effort. So it was absolutely essential to Britain's future. Okay, this all really helps explain the next part of the story, right? Because before he's even prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh got to work lobbying against this unfair oil deal, hoping to get a better deal for Iran. He tried to negotiate a new deal with the British that would allow Iran to keep a bigger share of the profits. Which I'm sure freaked out the British. And when negotiations broke down, the British imposed a worldwide embargo on Iranian oil. Eventually, in 1951, Mossadegh convinced the Iranian parliament to nationalize Iran's oil. And a month later, he was elected prime minister, which really sent the British to the roof. Premier Mossadegh, spearhead of the oil nationalization program, took his case to the United Nations, where he remained adamant in his So the British decided that the only solution was to get rid of Mossadegh and put in a more favorable government. And Mossadegh, sensing the British were up to something, shut down their embassy in Iran. And here's where I'm assuming the U.S. enters the picture, right? Right. So they called the Americans for help. And President Truman said no. 
You're not going to do it. He actually sent a, a mediator to Iran. He had Mossadegh come to Washington to try to persuade him. But when nothing worked, he essentially told the British, there's nothing you can do. You're going to have to swallow this. Like we had to swallow Mexico, nationalizing its oil industry in the 30s. We didn't like it. You're just going to have to live with this. But the following year, Dwight Eisenhower became president. And his thinking was a little different. Suddenly, you don't have an American president who forbids military action, but on the contrary, you have a new team that's eager to show that it's going to roll back threats to the United States, and that played right into the British hands. Plus, this was right around the time when the Cold War was heating up, and Iran happened to share a border with the Soviet Union. So what can he do to show that he's fighting communism? Well, he can't bomb Moscow. He's not going to invade China. You can't go after the real enemy. It's not possible. So you have to go after somebody else. Iran also, in this period, and I think it's important to mention, there was a communist party known as the Tudeh that um, was active in parliament, was supporting Mossadegh. And even though, by all accounts, Mossadegh was not a communist himself, the U.S. was still on high alert. So all these factors A, the British want us to eventually convince the U.S. B, Mossadegh is threatening the world economic... To get on board with Britain's plan. C, we're desperate for a victory. To stage a coup and overthrow Iran's prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. And yet before this evening is over, you might give me the brush. You might forget At 6 a.m. the morning after the coup attempt, Roosevelt and his men, tired from a night of partying, tuned into the radio. But all they heard was silence. And Roosevelt knew something had gone wrong. Then suddenly, the radio crackled on. Military music started playing, and Mossadegh announced victory over an attempted coup. He noticed that the Shah was nowhere to be found, and immediately suspected that the Shah was behind the coup attempt. Meanwhile, the Shah knew this might happen, and fearing Mossadegh would come after him, hopped on his private plane and flew to Baghdad. And from there, he went on to Rome, where he told reporters, I'm probably going to have to look for work now because I'm obviously never going to be able to go back to Iran. So to recap, at the end of day two, the Shah had left Iran, Mossadegh was still in power with no idea that the U.S. was behind the coup attempt, and Roosevelt had failed. But even though his bosses back in Washington told him he could go home after the coup failed... Kermit Roosevelt was not willing to give up that easily. I think it came a little bit from the old uh, CIA can-do mentality. I think he also sensed how weak the Iranian political establishment was. Uh, he thought he still had assets that he hadn't used. Mossadegh wasn't out of the woods just yet. Kermit Roosevelt had not given up and was actually was having a plan B. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI. Okay. Wow. A lot of stuff I did not know at all. So again, we're playing how the CIA overthrew... (coughs) Excuse me. My. Mm. 
How the CIA Overthrew Iran's Democracy in Four Days. This is from NPR, and it came out on February 9th, 2019. You can find it on their website. Or wherever you listen to podcasts. August 17th, 1953. A couple days after the failed coup attempt, crowds of supporters packed the streets, chanting the words, Mossadegh has won, and victory to the nation. It seemed like the worst was behind Mossadegh. He survived a coup attempt and lived to tell the tale. But this was the calm before the storm. Backroom dealings were happening out of sight, and the threat to Mossadegh was still very real. And we'll get to that. But during this momentary calm, we want to give you some insight into the man who was at the center of this whole thing, the man the US and Britain were terrified of, Mohammad Mossadegh. You get the feeling that this is a kind, fatherly person who cares about the people. And he's very respectful of people. He talks to people with respect for the first time. That an Iranian politician would address them as dear fellow citizen. This is Dr. Ibrahim Noruzi. I'm a retired physician. Dr. Noruzi was born in 1942 in a town in Iran called Qazvin. And he's a Mossadegh superfan. He even created a website to honor him. Dr. Noruzi became very interested in politics from a young age. Uh, I have no idea exactly why, because we didn't even have radio in our house when I was a kid, you know, when I was in elementary school. Uh, maybe I was very tiny and I was bullied a lot. Maybe so I, I wanted some sort of justice in the world. Dr. Noruzi, like a lot of Iranians, sees Mossadegh as kind of a national hero, a sort of Gandhi for Iran. He's really become a mythical figure. But to really understand Mossadegh, we have to find the man behind the myth. So Mohammad Mossadegh was an Iranian aristocrat. Again, Stephen Kinzer. His father had been finance minister for decades under the Qajar regime. His mother was a princess. He held various positions. That's Sanam Bakil. Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Finance, elected twice to the Iranian parliament. Uh, he went off to be educated in Europe. He came home and began campaigning against the agreement by which the British were trying to subjugate Iran and became quite outraged at the injustices he saw around him. And Mossadegh was known to be very dramatic. Um, there are these anecdotes uh, where he used to receive visitors in his bed, in his pajamas, for example. Mossadegh was a pretty eccentric guy, prone to outbursts and dramatic speeches where he would cry, even pass out. And the U.S. and Britain saw him as kind of erratic and unreliable, difficult to negotiate with, even if he was a fan of democratic ideas. Very much believed in the democratic ideals, unchecks and balances that were necessary to curtail monarchical power at the time. And he came of age during a time where these changes also influenced the political system. The biggest political change he witnessed happened when Mossadegh was in his 20s. Between 1905 and 1911, Iran went through a constitutional revolution. This was a remarkable moment in Middle Eastern history and in the history of the developing world. Iran developed a constitution in 1906. There are countries in the Middle East that don't even have a constitution today. The revolution sought to make Iran more democratic with things like a parliament, a constitution, and a free press. See, for centuries, the country had been ruled by shahs, or kings, with power passing from fathers to sons. 
But by the turn of the 20th century... By the turn of the 20th century, the corrupt, irresponsible business dealings of the Shahs were driving the Iranian economy straight into the ground, which made the Shahs really unpopular among the people. And this wasn't like normal corruption. We're talking crazy, excessive spending. Yeah, like one Shah had a harem of 1,600 people. 1,600? 1,600. And he and his many, many sons would use the national treasury as their personal piggy bank, taking money out whenever, you know, they wanted to travel around Europe. He also demanded that people call him one of the following names. Shah and Shah. Shah of Shahs. Ariyamesh. Asylum of the Universe. Buzurg. Subduer of climate. Guardian of the flock. Or shadow of God on earth. <laughs> I could see you wanting to be called guardian of the flock. <laughs> I, or honestly, would you prefer shadow of God on earth? I, I, I personally like subduer of climate. That, that just feels, I don't know, but it just feels we like a, a very... We actually, right we do need one right now. You're right. Anyway, point is, the Shahs were out of control, and the Constitutional Revolution united people across Iran against the Shah in favor of a more representative government. A coalition, if you will, of intellectuals, people from the bazaar, the clergy. When that coalition stood up to the monarchy, violence broke out. And one of the most interesting stories that I came across, Ramtin, that I don't think I've told you about yet, was the story of this American guy who actually fought in Iran's Constitutional Revolution. What? Really? Yeah. His name was... Howard Baskerville. Howard Baskerville. Who was a graduate of Princeton University Seminary School. Baskerville was an American missionary. And in this period, there was a lot of missionary activity coming from the United States. They would support education in various countries throughout the Middle East. He came to Iran and he identified with their plight. And Baskerville wanted to go and fight. On the side of the constitutionalists? Exactly. But the U.S. representative in Iran begged Baskerville not to join the fight. He came to him and yelled at him, no, you can't do that, you know. You shouldn't get involved in civil war of other countries. You came here to help, you know. But he wouldn't listen. And then he threatened him that if you go and involve yourself in the war, I take away your passport. He said, okay, this is my passport. He threw it at him. He said, no, just because I was born in America, that doesn't mean I'm better than them. I'm like them. I'm going to fight for them, for their cause, and this is a good cause. Unfortunately, he dies just the first hour of a battle. And by the way, Baskerville, his sculpture was installed in Constitutional Hall in Tabriz, and his tomb is like a uh, worship place. So... Iranian extrapolated these missionaries' uh, action to America as a government. So what I'm, I'm saying is that Americans left a very good impression in Iran. Iranians loved it. I had never heard of this guy, Howard Baskerville. Neither had I before this. I mean, it's really wild to think that this guy would have laid down his life for Iran's constitutional revolution. Like, think about it. How many Americans at that time even knew where Iran was, let alone go over there and fight. Right. And it's interesting because at that time, Britain and the Shah were the bad guys, but America Mm -hmm. was kind of an ally in their fight. Yeah, exactly. Until they got involved. In the days after the coup attempt, however, all that seemed to matter was that Mossadegh was a man of the people and that he was still in power. But out of sight, a new plot against Mossadegh was brewing. Kermit Roosevelt's Plan B.
All right, I'm going to take a little bit of a break, uh, shift things up a bit. And wanted to go back to Howard Zinn. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Artists in the Time of War, which you can find online. Uh, I'm going to play another selection from this. The first piece we played was called Speaking Out. And... Next, we're going to go to uh, the artist and society. Hundreds and hundreds well, of rioters filled the I have never Tehran. talked and in a about this topic. I won't say I've never talked, <laughs> but I've never talked about this topic, you know, the art and society. Of course, I've thought about it. My wife is a painter. I have artist friends, some of my best friends. Our artists. Some of them are here, observing me. Uh, but as I say, yeah, I, I've th thought about it. Of course, all of us have. And uh, and what comes to mind when I think of the, you know, the relationship of the artist to society, what should be the relationship of the artist to society. And with me, it's always a question of what should be and not what is. But I think of the word transcendent, which is a word I've never used in public. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the only thing I could come up with to describe uh, what I think about the role of the artist. And by that I mean, you know, not, you know, Immanuel Kant's, well, yes, sort of close to it, but not really <laughs> his idea of what is transcendent, something like it. But the, the idea is that the artist transcends the immediate, uh, transcends the here and now. The artist, well, transcends the madness of the world, transcends the madness of terrorism, transcends the madness of war. And uh, the artist thinks outside the framework and acts and paints and does music and writes outside the framework that society has, has created. And, and the artist may do s no more than, and I don't mean to minimize it by saying no more than, the artist may do more than you know, give us uh, beauty and laughter, uh, passion, surprise, drama, and that's, that's good. <laughs> uh, that is, the artist needn't apologize for just doing that, because in doing that, the, the artist is telling us what the world should be like, even if it isn't that way now. And the artist is, is taking us away from the moments of horror that we experience every day in this world, some days more than others, and and showing us something else, showing us what is possible. There's no need for an artist to apologize about just giving us something that is passionate and beautiful and funny or any of those. No, no need to apologize for that. Yeah. But. <laughs> All right, so that was the artist and society from Howard Zinn from Artists in a Time of War 
I'm going to put together a few other things here for, for the remainder of the program. Again, there's so much to get to. I do want to listen to the rest of the NPR piece on Iran and hopefully at least one of the things I've shared today will hopefully, yeah, uh, help educate. I know it's helped educate myself as a reminder, even though I've heard some of these things before, it's a good reminder of that the majority of people are against war. And I also wanted to get to some local news. I've been following the Moms for Housing, which you can follow online uh, on Twitter, at Moms, the number four housing. And it's a group of mothers who are unhoused who found a vacant home and have been living in there as they should. And the property company has been trying to evict them. However, many folks have been coming to the defense and showing up uh, with these families. And you can follow more and also donate to them, Moms for Housing. And there's a video clip that they shared on Twitter, which I'm going to share right now. So I'm just going to get everything all set up here. And they um, posted this. Uh, this is through Bypass underscore TV. And uh, this is uh, Talani King, one of the co-founders of Moms for Housing. She speaks on the pain that thousands of homeless mothers around the country and around the world are going through every day, invisible, unheard, and ignored. You can uh, watch, listen, and share this. Hashtag housing now. Hard. I feed my community weekly. I sacrifice my life for people. And this city, this country, has not sacrificed anything for me. So I will take it. Say that. I'm at the point of taking what I need. People died for us to be at this point, and we are slipping backwards. Struggling, still struggling, yeah. This has troubled my life. This has not just touched me. This has troubled my life. I am someone. I deserve yes. a house yes. to live in. Yes. Yes. I deserve yes. a place to grow up. I deserve this. This is not something that I want. This is not something I desire. This is what I deserve. Yes. I deserve to have a place to take my head and lay it down. I work hard. All right, so again, this is from the Moms for Housing. You can follow them at Moms for Housing on Twitter, and they also have a website as well. And there's some more speakers here, so I'm going to continue sharing these uh, videos here. And this is again shared by uh, through Bypass TV, which is at Bypass underscore TV on Twitter, and this was shared on December 31st, 2019. They, they are trying to present themselves as the David in this David and Goliath fight. And the speaker is Carol Fife from uh, ACCE. We wow. say no. No. The billionaires. The billionaires, the banks, the hedge fund companies, these corporations that come in here and profit off the misery that they help cause are not David. Goliath. The ones that are oppressing these families and these mothers directly and indirectly are being fought right now, not just by you all and people who come out here, but also by these mothers who, yes, are courageous freedom fighters. They have been threatened physically. If 
if you all are on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, you will see how their bodies are being threatened. They've been, they've been threatened with lynchings and shootings and all kinds of violence. That is just one aspect of the violence. But another is having to not know what your next day will be because you don't know where your children will lay their heads. Just last night, these babies put their... These babies put this bedroom together with sheets and pillows and blankets and art that they designed. And they thought of every way that they could make this house even more a home for them. This is an example of what it means to be secure and not have to worry about what your tomorrow will look like. Destiny just did a video talking about being here and looking at these trees and wanting to be the big one because this is the strong one. But identified with the small one as one that's been attempted to be cut down but is still struggling to stand, that is still struggling to stay here. What Sam Singer and Wedgwood would have you believe is that these families are the criminals. Alright, so this was shared from Bypass underscore TV, and again, that was Carol Fife from ACCE. And I'm going to look down, there's another video here. Uh, this is uh, Carol Fife, who's the regional director of ACCE. And play this video right now. There's something corrupt with this system. It is rotten yeah. from the root, yeah. and we are going to dig it out. That's right. Yes. Yes. Dig it out. Commend. I commend the three city council members who have stood up and stood with these women to say enough. I will be on the right side of history and legislation with what works for the people, not the corporations. Do not buy into this crap that they're trying to sell that somehow these women are wrong. Because if we start today with just an individual situation, it's just between these women and this com company, the women are wrong. This is a system. This is about systemic issues. And they are the model for what is wrong with housing in this country and in the world. Speculation just doesn't exist in Oakland. It's just insidious here. The fact that California is why the country is leading in homelessness is something about the system. And I am forever indebted to these women for being courageous enough to step out there to say we will highlight what is wrong with the system. So I implore you to call your elected officials that didn't show up today. And if you want to be clear about who did, I'm going to just tell you who did, who is standing with this, with this movement right now. Council member Nikki Fortunato Bass is a G, is a G. Council member Rebecca Kaplan, Council member Dan Call, those are the three. So if I didn't name somebody, they have not stood up to say enough on, uh, on speculation. I will also th say that there are two supporters from the County Board of Supervisors who stepped up to say, Wedgwood, if the moms have an option 
to buy the house. Why won't you talk to them? What are you losing? Okay. So some more clips there from Rally from Moms for Housing. And again, you can follow them at Moms for Housing. And I believe there's also, there's a uh, petition that health workers can sign. I'm going to pull that up now as well. Just give me just a moment. And yes, so um, this was shared by Rupa Maria, MD. And there's a it's a Google Google Doc, and I believe I've shared it on Twitter, so I'll share it there again. And also, the Coalition on Homelessness has shared it, so I will share that once more. And uh, might take me a moment though. However, if you follow Coalition on Homelessness and you go to there, this might be the easier way to find it. To Coalition on Homelessness, follow them, and you can follow them if you don't already at the at the coalition sf and on january 1st they shared this calling all nurses doctors surgeons emts pas health educators public health community stand in solidarity with at moms for housing and sign and share this letter housing is healthcare. so they provide a link it's a google doc that you can sign so please if you are a health healthcare worker and or you know healthcare workers as i imagine most of us do please do spread the word all right i'm gonna wrap up the show here I'll do one more uh, anti-war song and then uh, a couple B-52 songs. And thanks again so much for listening. I do appreciate it. And, huh, yes. So I'm going to move along here. And, again, um, going back to go over the f- a few things I shared today, how the CIA overthrew Iran's democracy in four days. I played the first part of that. That's from NPR, and it came out on February 9th, 2019. Also play the first 14 minutes of the documentary Sir No Sir, which is the GI movement against fighting in Vietnam. That came out in 2005. You can find that on YouTube. And also played selections from Howard's Inn, Artists in a Time of War. You can find that also on YouTube. And there's also the CD of it that you can purchase as well. <sighs> okay. So I'm going to end this, uh, or not end it. Next up will be uh, Saul Williams with Not In Our Name, The Pledge of Resistance. And then I'll play some B-52s from their debut album. So thanks again so much for listening, and I'll be back next week. The greatest Americans have not been born yet. They are waiting patiently for the past to die. Please give blood, George Bush. Please give blood, Ashcroft. Please give blood, Catholic priests in Boston and elsewhere. Please give blood so that the beings in waiting will find their way into the wombs of warrior women. Not in our name, the pledge to resist We believe that as a people living in the United States, it is our responsibility to resist the injustices done by our government in our names. Not in our name will you wage endless war. There can be no more deaths, no more transfusions of blood for oil. 
not in our name. Will you invade countries, bomb civilians, kill more children, letting history take its course over the graves of the nameless? Not in our names will you erode the very freedoms you have claimed to fight for. Not by our hands will we supply weapons and funding for the annihilation of families on foreign soil. Not by our mouths will we let fear silence us. Not by our hearts will we allow whole peoples or countries to be deemed evil. Not by our will and not in our name. We pledge resistance. We pledge alliance with those who have undercome attack for voicing opposition to the war or for their religion or ethnicity. We pledge to make common cause with the people of the world to bring about justice, freedom, and peace. Another world is possible, and we pledge to make it real.
Law Tigers. We fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers. We're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your... He's real. That's a real thought of a real chair. Now, is that chair built? It could be built somewhere. Could you build that chair? Absolutely. So ideas are real. That's what I'm sort of getting at is that... Oh, and then yeah. when it, there's a collection, and specifically with 45 and the racism and what's happening, is that every time he does tweet something, whether he negates it later or th- the the purpose of it or the spreading of the idea of hate or racism or that poor people are ugly and sad and bad or that women are stupid or that um, only skinny and pretty women should be around him because uh, whatever. (laughs) I mean, like all of all of that gestalt that he embodies and that's us right now as as a nation. He's our representative. And so he's he's representing us really shittily right now oh it's and are we gonna are we gonna let this
Today, it's Friday, January 10th. Thanks thanks so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in the Mission District. We're in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land, and one way to learn more about the land, the history of the land we're on, is to go to ramitash.com, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com. You can also check out the Shumi Land Tax, and that's S-H-U-U-M-I Land Tax, and that is for for anybody and especially folks in the east bay so i've got a show coming up i hesitate to i i recognize a lot of times when folks have shows they say we have a great show coming up and an excellent show coming up and i can't predict the future i do think it's going to be a pretty awesome show today we have a guest annalise ophelian coming in at 12:30, and annalise will be discussing her film uh the series called looking for leia which is now streaming on the sci-fi network i highly recommend it it's interesting and heartwarming and I learned a lot by watching it and I really highly highly recommend it um, start off the show still playing some music here because it took me a little bit while to get all set up here the album Marquee Moon by television I mentioned last week that my new thing was to not a new thing but for me I guess it's a new thing was to go to the library the public library has so many great resources and they have vinyl as well and we've got some record players here at the station, so I thought, why not pick up some really good records and be able to play them on the air? So this was one of them that I picked up a couple weeks ago, and it came out in 1977, so I thought that would go in very nicely with Star Wars, which came out in 77. I do have a lot of recommendations for documentaries and movies and, and books that folks can check out. I'll see what I can get to. I, I took a lot of notes, and we'll see what I can get to in the meantime. The first is a documentary I played a little bit of last week, and that's called Sir No Sir. And a, an abridged version is available on YouTube. It's a little over 40 minutes or so. So if you type in Sir No Sir, you can get the link. And it's a documentary about GIs and veterans who, during the 60s, uh, during the Vietnam War, refused to fight. And many folks protested. And there are all sorts of tactics. They also like set up coffee shops in the US, and they drop pamphlets. There's a whole... There's a whole lot of stuff that the folks did. So I really recommend that folks check that out. And so online for free is uh, an abridged version, as I mentioned. And then if you're, you can either order the DVD, 
in full or you can rent it from your local library and also a cool feature from the dvd is that they have i would say at least two hours of extra features so that's interviews and other documentary footage including when vets were it's, i think it's called just the beginning and it's footage of when vets threw their medals back at the white house just like had rallies and it was just and gave speeches and a lot of of course what they're talking about with the u.s imperialists going into fight against non-white people around the world and how very little has changed since then so i highly recommend folks check that out and as people are now going to many folks are protesting the war already the the with i mean there's many wars happening so i should be more specific i suppose upcoming U.S.-led escalations against Iran, I think about how if, yes, we can all gather in the streets, and we should, and also if no one if no one fights the war, like, it's that's another piece of it, too, is that if people refuse to fight, then there will be no war. So thinking about that as well. Obviously, easier said than done, and I'm sitting on the sidelines here, so I, I recognize my, my place in that, and I also really want to encourage folks to check out Sir No Sir, because it's a lot of what we weren't taught or didn't know about, and for, for me, I should say, I didn't know a lot about it, so I highly recommend uh, folks check out that documentary. Um, also, a couple of books. There's one I'm in the middle of that I highly recommend. You can also go to Green Arcade, which is on Market Street. It's a great independent bookstore. I picked it up when they were at the Howardson Book Fair. I believe I've lost track of time pretty much. It was probably a few weeks ago. And the name of the book is Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism. And that's edited by Carolyn L. Karcher. And just 40 different essays. Uh, from a variety of folks, and I highly recommend that book. And also, I wanted to recommend an audio, well, it's a book and an audio book, so depending on what you have the energy for or where you're at, it's When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Khan Colors and Asha Bandel. And it is also available on the Libby app. So if you have a library card, you can download the Libby app and you get free audiobooks. And I highly recommend that book. It's really good. So, wanting to put those two books out there in the universe, uh, please do pick up some books if you, if you, please do it. There we go. That's me being authoritative. Like, maybe if you want to, I don't know. I have a lot of talks with people about how I don't feel comfortable telling people what to do, even if it's a recommendation. However, that's the very least I can do is be like, hey, check out this great book and this great movie, and hopefully it will make your life a, a little bit more rich and fulfilling. All right. So those, I think, were the um, recommendations for books and the documentary. And also, I wanted to check a few other uh, updates on events that are happening tomorrow, Saturday, January 11th at noon at 24th and Mission, there is going to be a protest against 45 and his whole stupid ass administration. And so if you want to show up, if you're in the Bay Area, please do come through. Again, that's tomorrow, Saturday, January 11th at noon at 24th and Mission. There's going to be a rally and a march. Also, um, Shahid Buttar, who's running against Nancy Pelosi, wanting to lend a lot of support to Shahid's campaign. East just stands for a lot of really good things like end of mass surveillance, end of war, excuse me, funding infrastructure, 
excuse me, a lot of good things. So, and he just really wants to push the whole conversation forward of people, you know, civil rights, basic rights, healthcare, Medicare for all. He he stands for all of that. So, if you would like to volunteer for Shahid's campaign and or learn more, please go to shahidforchange.us, and that's S H A. H-I-D-F-O-R-C-H-A-N-G-E dot U-S. All right. So got those things done. And also some bad news because we live in a capitalist country. So there's just bad news every day. I don't want to be, you know, I want to offer hope and also be realistic because it's like, oh, great. So we've talked, um, there's Moms for Housing, which is a group of, previously unhoused mothers in Oakland who have taken over a vacant house in West Oakland. And they have a lot of support from community. They even have some support from representatives. I say even because oftentimes elected officials can be really disappointing, such as Libby Schaff, who is the mayor of Oakland, who has not supported them, and that's really fucked up. So pretty much they're like, they have, these are mothers, they have kids, and they're like, there's a vacant house, at least allow us to buy it. Let's live in here, let's buy it. It's vacant, no one's here. It seems like a no it's like a no brainer. It's like, why shouldn't people be able to live in houses? It doesn't make any sense, especially given the the rise in homelessness in the Bay area. So again, they had a lot of support. Uh, however, the Wedgwood, which is the evil corporation, which owns the, they say they own the property, even though they're, they're not based here in the Bay area. It's just a fucking greedy real estate agency. Pretty much. There was just a ruling. I got a text uh, today that the ruling came down in favor of Wedgwood, which is really fucked up. And so there's an emergency press conference, which is happening at the house today at 2 p.m. And if you are able to go, please do. It's at 2928 Magnolia Street, and that's in Oakland. Again, 2 p.m. today. And you can also find more information if you type in Moms for Housing. You can follow them on Twitter also, Moms, the number four, housing. It's... It makes me so fucking angry that there are clear ways that folks, I mean, if everyone had their basic needs met, the world would just be better for everyone. I don't understand how, why people argue against that and why people want to make things harder for people. I know in times in my life when I've had, when I haven't had stable housing, I'm my self-esteem has gone down. I don't treat others as well. I don't treat myself very well. It's hard for me to get things done. It's hard to survive because I'm in survival mode. So it's hard for me to show up for myself and community as much as I would like. And when I am more taken care of and I have basic needs met, of course I can show up better. I feel better. And it's like, why don't you want, why wouldn't somebody want everyone in the world to have that? Like we have plenty of resources. There's that myth that, oh, there's not enough. There's plenty. There is more vacant houses than there are people in this country. So, and especially with also with food, like so much food gets wasted. It just, it's, it makes me so fucking angry that people are suffering because of a few people who have a lot of wealth and a lot of greed. And then the folks who support them and the police who end up, you know, following orders and pushing around protesters and locking people up for being poor, which is fucked up and makes everything worse for everyone. Makes me super angry. <sighs> well, there's, there's my sigh. There's my way of getting it out. So again, uh, if you are able to get to Oakland today at 2 PM, please do. Oh, 
yeah, it's at, let me just pull this up again, 2928 Magnolia Street in Oakland. And their press conference is happening at 2 p.m. today. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to take a, a deep breath and just center myself and also just recognize that... Uh, there are and have been for a long time folks fighting for what's right and can't let the people in positions of power win. Okay. I have a few more news stories to get to and I'm going to see if I can... Uh, pull them up at the moment here. Folks are still protesting in France. It seems like an ongoing thing. I read, I think it was this morning maybe, that lawyers had taken off their robes and were joining in, and a lot of folks, many, many folks are protesting in France. And I'm, no, I've, I still have a Facebook profile, but they're, Facebook's always been kind of evil, but now they're, they're super evil. They're just allowing uh, anti-vaccination ads and fascist ads and misinformation. And so I haven't been on there checking things in a while because I don't want to contribute. However, I'm still connected with people on there. So, And as an artist, it's difficult to not have that uh, platform to network. So I'm in limbo at the moment. Still my profile up. Haven't checked it in a month, maybe. <sighs> so I've been getting a lot of news on Twitter, which I know is also has a lot of fucking issues and they let, you know, not neo-Nazis on there and spew their bullshit and ban people who protest against them. So that's fucked up. However, there are ways that, you know, at least folks can share news that's happening and ways to access news that one might not get elsewhere. So if you're interested, I end up sharing a lot of information on Twitter. You can follow me at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And in Santa Cruz, at UC Santa Cruz, folks are on strike. Students are on strike, and they joined in another strike. So I wanted to get to that story, if I might. Let's see here. This was shared by the SRA, which is the Socialist Rifle Association. And they have a Bay Area chapter. Uh, Black Rose Bay Area shared, uh, happening now on the UC Santa Cruz campus, striking graduate student workers and striking AFSCME workers are holding a joint rally outside the administrative building, hashtag UCSC strike, and they have some video footage there. So sending out lots of love and solidarity to the folks at UC Santa Cruz. And let's see, I believe... I had another story up here as well. I will, I tend to f highlight these and email them to myself throughout the week so I can easily check them out while I'm doing the show here. This might be under my drafts file, so bear with me. Oh, there's a song I might be playing at some point. Uh, Rita Martinson, Soldier We Love You. So it's that I heard and saw in the Inserno Sir, no, Sir, no, Sir. And what's this? There's another article here that I am pulling up. Oh, yes. Uh, there's a new exhibit in, at the Whitney Museum. And it's, you can find the article on them.us. And if you happen to be in New York, it's going to be up for a while 
And um, it's a new exhibit at the Whitney Museum, remembers David Wojnarowicz, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, whose work forever changed what it means to be queer in America. I've seen a lot of his work before, and it's awesome. So if you happen to be in New York, I highly recommend uh, folks check that out. All right, we're going to take a bit of a music break, and we'll be back with uh, Annalise in a little bit. So please do stay tuned.
back here. Uh, please welcome Annalise Ophelia in here to the show. Thanks so much for being here, Annalise. It is so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I was hoping we could talk about your new project, Looking for Leia, which is now streaming on the Sci-Fi Network, and I highly recommend it to everybody. It's super exciting. It's amazing to have it like out in the world. You know, I think particularly with documentary, we work on things for so long. Yes. And then when they actually are out there and it's not just my imaginary friend, it's like, no, no, everyone can look at this. It gets really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. And Thank you. also I'm a big fan of Major, which is an incredible film, which I also recommend that folks see about Miss Major. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I have a, I have a lot of questions about it, of um, looking for Leia. And one is that it's a, ser- it's a series that's on sci-fi. And I was curious, um, when you were filming it originally, did you plan on it being a longer, like one longer piece? And then later on decided it should be shorter vignettes? Or what was that process like? Yeah, it did, I did originally conceptualize it as just a feature doc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea was that I was, I wanted actually originally to sort of road trip around and talk with women about their fandom. And my thought, um, I sort of conceptualized it when we were uh, just starting to tour major actually, mm-hmm. was, um, and it was while Carrie Fisher was still alive, was that I'd talk with fans, uh, talk with women in fandom, and then figure out a way of getting a compelling enough reel to like Carrie Fisher's people that she would then kind of give us an interview and sort of help us wrap things together. Um, And so that was the initial thought. And so looking for Leia actually was really born as a title out of this idea of a kind of like journey or a quest or a road trip to to learn more about fandom. Uh, And when she passed, it really felt like the project passed along with her. Mm. Uh, And also 2016, we're all, I think, feeling it right now as well, right? It was such a dreadful year on so many levels. And so it just felt like this horrible kind of, you know, punctuation mark on the end of an already awful, awful year. And my partner, Storm Miguel, Mm -hmm. uh, co-producer on Major and also filmmaker, who I know has been a guest here, was the one who was just like, no, it's actually really, this is a great time Mm -hmm. to be doing that project. And like, we were, you know, just kind of looking down the pipeline at um, the time to come and realizing that actually, a project about joy was going to be really important yeah. and tucking into the places where we found happiness was going to be really important. So it started off as this, I kind of, I'm going to do a sort of ensemble doc piece. This is very much my style, right? Course, course of voices telling us about a phenomenon, yes. but pretty quickly after starting filming, it became really obvious that um, when you first of all, fandom is just not a singular phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And then of course, women is in no way a homogenous group. Right. And and so it just became very difficult to think about how to get a singular story to link all of those. Mm-hmm. And I also love the series format. I think it's really audience friendly. Yes. Let's just yeah. drop in, take what we want. We don't have to get into the things that aren't as compelling to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was on the fence up until probably this last year. And then in post, it was just like, no, no, this is going to come together as a series much better. Yeah. And how did you get in touch with the Sci-Fi Network? Did they find you? Did you find them? How did that work out? I mean, I found them. I'm definitely a fan. I think when you're like, this is the nice thing about doing fandom projects is yeah. that we're also, you know, we are creators and we are audience members. So in that final year of post, I was definitely shopping the project around and we had a lot of really great, strong interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think this is one of the things about distribution is that it's it's not actually a straight up meritocracy. There are so many incredible projects that never get distribution. That yes. is not because they weren't great projects. Yes. It's because it's a numbers game and finding that right place, right time is mm-hmm. just like, you know, it's a bit of a lightning striking situation. Yes. Um, and so I approached sci-fi with this like 
hope that it would fit well there. I love what that network does. Yes. Uh, yes. They re sort of organized themselves a, a couple, three years back mm-hmm. as being a really fandom centered, fandom forward. Um, ecosystem really of, yeah. of both like the cable channel but also with sci-fi wire who is like we're officially a sci-fi wire presents okay um and i just love the quality of the discourse that was coming from them uh and it took fan they take fandom seriously yes yeah. while still having fun with it and mm-hmm. so they were um yeah they were immediately responsive which was such a great feeling it's always nice when you make a thing yes and you get to connect with um with you know companies like sci-fi who are like yeah we see exactly what you're doing here let's let's put this out in the world yeah did you feel like you had creative control over the project like where you were able to have final say as to what went into it yeah i mean one of the nice things about um shopping finished work is that you're mm-hmm. actually the, the, the work is done got it and okay. so you it's unlike making a thing for hire unlike you know kind right. of making a thing where you're like i'm directing under a, a production studio yes. um when you're doing independent doc you're you know the, the upside is you yeah you have all of the control you call all the shots the downside is every one person is doing the job of 12 film yes. professionals yeah <laughs> um but no sci-fi didn't ask for any changes in the format or what we delivered um um, they've run it exactly as as oh, I brought it to them. Excellent. What did you find? I would imagine that there's so much footage that you and interviews that you did. Like, so much. It, what are there any particular stories or pieces that you really wanted to include and just didn't quite have a way to include? That oh, you I mean, wanted just to share? tons. Just tons. Yeah. Like, really, it's hard to. I it's I ended up talking with over a hundred women on camera. Wow. Um, and also non-binary folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Of that, and it's a 4K footage, so like you know, it's a 25 terabyte hard drive that's almost full. Wow! So you know, just a little wow. insight into like the media management is its own special beast. Yeah. Um, and I transcribed all of those as well because my editing process is kind of like qualitative research, and I like to go through um, hard copy transcripts. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a thousand pages of transcript. Wow! And we wow. ended up with seven episodes, twelve to fifteen minutes each. Yeah. So to say that, like, I could have made this series a dozen different ways with entirely unique content and been in love with it, with all of it is yeah. an understatement. Yeah. Are there any pieces in particular that come to mind that you wanted to share? I mean, one of the stories that I really love and that we didn't find a space in the final series for, and I'm yeah. hoping actually we get to find a place somewhere. Yeah. Um, is a woman, uh, Cindy, who retired from the Air Force uh-huh. after, um, you know, a, a long and storied career as a protocol officer. She went into the Air Force because she actually wanted to be an astronaut after seeing Star Wars in 1977 when oh. she was 11 years old. She reads this fan letter that she wrote to George Lucas when she was 11 mm-hmm. that she still has a copy of. Yeah. Um, and she had a Star Wars-themed retirement party from the Air Force at oh. um, the Wings Over the Rockies Museum where they have an X-Wing fighter and all kinds of, of great and it's just this way that um, fandom plays these sort of subtle but significant roles in the ways we shape our sense of self, the ways that we're drawn into careers. Yes. Um, it becomes a kind of shared language. And, uh, and yeah, everything about her story just felt so great. And I, I love her story as well, because even though she does have a flawlessly appointed Star Wars bathroom and a screening room at, with like lightsabers on the walls wow. and like all like, you know, like she certainly got those things that we recognize as like, okay, that's a fandom commitment. Yes. I think often stories about fandom are about the like biggest, best, most, and most fandom, I think expresses itself in much more everyday ways. Yes. Uh, and they're still extraordinary. 
story. Yeah. But in this way that like she and her husband who I've also then gotten to see on the convention circuit. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's just really like her husband has this amazing Admiral Radis cosplay, which is like the Mon Calamari from Rogue One. Uh-huh. It's like a full latex, you know, fish outfit. It's amazing. Um, like certainly they've committed a lot of stuff, but also just like in a very everyday real life kind of way. Yeah. Um, so those kinds of daily fandom stories, um, I just, yeah, I'm sitting on a ton of them and, uh, and we didn't get to get them all on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't even know where to start in terms of the episodes, but so many were just, I learned so much and growing up, I guess I could talk about my own Star Wars experience. I have an older brother mm-hmm. who was really into Star Wars and he kind of came of age just as the first one was, or he was a kid when the first one came out. And then I remember watching them growing up because that was what was on. And I was not necessarily forced to watch them, but encouraged strongly to watch them or didn't really have a choice. That's a nice euphemism. Yes. It's yeah. Forced so much as I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. And could be, a, could be far worse certainly of things that older siblings make the younger ones watch, of course. Um, but I definitely like went into it. Like I, I, I like it and I appreciate it. And then seeing this, this series, I, there's some pieces that folks were talking about in terms of rebelling. And it was great to see Elena Rose and a few familiar faces in the series, in the series as well. And just the points that folks made, I think, especially coming from a queer context too, of, you know, rebelling in order to survive and going against the odds. And there's so many themes, I think throughout each episode, just about empowerment that really struck a chord with me that I might not have thought about on my own. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and certainly I think as a queer filmmaker, um, that will always be a gaze. It'll always be a lens that I bring to my projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing that's necessarily like standalone, inherently queer about Star Wars. Certainly there's been no on-screen significant queer representation in that franchise. Although there was supposed to be in the last one. We got the, we got this like yeah. kind of kiss thing. It's yeah. true. Um, like undeniably there was a kiss. Yeah. Um, but I think that one of the things that's really amazing about fandom and how fandom functions in daily life is that it is always through our subjective lens. Yeah. Um, so yeah, certainly there's a queer lens on this and I can hear the places throughout all of the episodes where those, if you're, if you're listening to them or they resonate with you, those messages that are about resistance, rebellion and, um, and empowerment really shine through. So I'm glad to hear it landed that way. For oh, you. definitely. And the, the episode, I think it was episode five that was about uh, Navajo translation. I mean, I saw it twice and I cried both times and it was just so beautiful. Yeah. uh, There are these episodes in post and you know, um, you can't do documentary without building relationships with the people that you're in collaboration with. And I certainly work very collaboratively as a documentarian as well. Like my, the participants in my docs are always involved in posts. Like Mm -hmm. it's not a, I've, I am now making executive decisions about what I think the subjective reality of your life is. It's very like, I'm going to edit this. I'm going to give it back to you and say, did I get this right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I have a conversation with folks. You you build relationships. Um, And, um, I'm certainly not a stranger to like sobbing through post-production <laughs> um, often yeah. for reasons that are like really difficult. Like we lost a lot of family members making major and mm. it was a really challenging post-production to be in the presence of our, you know, sisters and aunties and, and people who, who were no longer with us as we were trying to finish the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and me and looking for Leia was a different kind of sobbing <laughs> through post-production. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a lot of happy sobbing, but I couldn't get through what we preserve. Um, without yeah just having those like deep choke sobs um that came from that place i think of what happens when we see people 
yeah, like speaking the thing that's authentic and real for them. Um, and just that description, the description that all three women had at various times talking about the premiere yes. was, um, yeah, I just felt incredibly grateful to uh, get, you know, when I first heard about that story, actually, yeah. which was when the Navajo translation. So for folks who don't know, in mm -hmm. 2013, uh, Manny Wheeler, who's the director of the Navajo Nation Museum in Window Rock, Arizona, took on the sort of task of translating A New Hope into Diné. And it's the first ma major motion picture to ever be dubbed into Navajo. And if we think about the sort of cultural significance of a movie like Star Wars, um, you know, I think that when the rest of this planet is, you know, not looking at all like what it looks like now, which it really could be in like a month and a half, um, Star Wars is one of those things that will somehow persevere. It is a incredibly um, resilient bedrock mm -hmm. to tape your culture on. Yes. Um, and and so as a language preservation effort, as a multi-generational language preservation effort, is a really powerful thing. And then also yeah. there's a huge amount of um, connection, I think. And there was a great... Uh, uh, art um, installation or museum piece, uh, The Forces With Our People, that's uh, various indigenous artists and mm -hmm. their connection to the Star Wars stories that's happening actually right now at the Museum of Arizona. Oh, well, okay. Which folks can look up online. Um, but as we got to talk with the voice actor who did Princess Leia, uh, the voice actor who did C-3PO, who I love was voiced by a woman because yes. we also learned that C-3PO ends up with about 40% of the dialogue. Mm. So really, you've got a woman telling the story yeah. of, of Star Wars in a lot of ways. Uh, and then um, Jen Wheeler, one of the translators of the project. So they all described the, the premiere um, on the Navajo Nation at Window Rock um, outdoors and what it was like to show community the film for the first time and it's yeah it's amazing to get to witness it when I first heard the story I just wanted to keep hearing the story yes yes so I'm so grateful that they all agreed to kind of participate and create this episode yeah because it feels really nice to just like as many different preservation points of the story as we can have definitely I think that's great Chris Taylor also wrote uh, the whole introductory chapter of um, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe mm. is actually about the Navajo translation that's also a great book for folks who are interested in okay. the making of and, and general star wars lore oh cool um was there when you were putting the the, the series on was there how do i ask this um in terms of the order of the episodes mm. what went into figuring out the order? like i recognize like the first one it seems very you know open mm -hmm. this is kind of leading into what the series will be about I was curious as to what went into the, the, yeah, the order of the episodes. Yeah. So I definitely, I wanted to create something that you could watch all the way through. And yeah. this is, um, I think this is binge culture as well, right? So if you yes. watch them all the way through, you yes. committed yourself to essentially a feature film. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like 87 minutes long if mm -hmm. you just sit down and watch all of them. So I figure that's not too much to bite off. No one has to feel guilty about sitting on their sofa for that long. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to set it up as well that if something isn't resonating, you can skip forward. And unlike a, a plot-driven series, you're not going to miss a crucial piece of information right, that right. prohibits you from understanding future episodes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. The first episode is a sort of overview. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to touch on some of the things and themes that then we go deeper into. Um, and so that's establishing the sort of scope of this franchise, which I think often people think of as a few movies. But it's actually 43 years of transmedia creation mm. right so that's that cinema that's television both animated and now live action uh that's role-playing games this massive expanded universe with like hundreds of novels and then all of the new novels that are being created comic books um just like so many points of connection and you know i think often about like star wars legos oh yeah <laughs> and that there's also like video games and television sh stories about star wars legos 
Um, wow. Years ago, I was spending time with my friend's four-year-old who his entire reference point for Star Wars were Star Wars Legos. Huh. And so for him, Anakin was a good guy. He did not know who Boba Fett was, but he knew who Jango Fett was. Uh -huh. And I was having these conversations with him, like, we like the same thing, and we have totally different experiences. And of course, all the characters just look like Lego minifigs to yes. him. Yes, yes. So this is to say, that first episode establishes scope. Uh-huh. And lets us meet some folks, uh, including podcasters and fic writers, um, and also gives us a sense of what we're going to see. Yeah. Um, and then I go, I do the, we do the way back machine a little mm -hmm. bit, and so mm -hmm. the second episode, fanzines, is really a look back. Yeah, that and, was. Oh. And I think also just that it it hits so many points of what, especially what female fans are still going through mm -hmm. in terms of like having to prove themselves as fans and male you know, male fans giving them quizzes and everything. And there was like a line about how dominant culture is only assumed to be, it's only assumed that the, the audience is male dominated yeah. and how that still is, is a case. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that way that we just like, you know, often when I first started production on the series, my media requests, this was after the force awakens had come out. Mm -hmm. And so the media requests were like, well, now that we have this character of Ray, yes. why are women suddenly into star Wars? So oh, every conversation goodness. with the media I had started with this like kind of gentle re-education. Yes. Actually, yeah. <laughs> to, to use the masculine parlance, actually yes. <laughs> women have always been fans yeah. of science fiction and fantasy genre. In fact, are responsible for it. Right. Teenage girl created the genre. Mm -hmm. Since Trek fandom have been integrally involved in things like fic writing, yes. and fanzines, and the print fanzine culture of the 70s and 80s and into the 90s before it then moved online, where it's still massive, yeah. um, represents some of the most incredible creative output, right? Like really just intense engaged fandom convention culture and cosplay mm -hmm. um like all of these domains that we think of as being fandom yeah were really established by um and fueled by women women's labor women's creative mm -hmm. efforts um but the assumption is that because we tend to universalize what we see as what exists we get a lot of i think kind of skewed metrics on yes that. and then of course after the last jedi came out every single press request was why are star wars fans so toxic and i had to once again go in Ooh. and do sort of gentle re-education of you know to, to use a star wars quote your focus determines your reality Ooh. and and so the, if, if you're staring at things in a really specific way you'll get your correlation and causation all kitty wampus and make some inaccurate claims yeah and i, I get to field those a lot um but yeah we look backwards at fanzines we yes. talk then a bit about stereotypes um and and the difference between uh the sort of acquisition model of fandom that like i'm collecting trivia i'm collecting toys this is the metric of my fandom mm -hmm. versus these more creative generative forms yes yeah um, and then we get into the more kind of, I think, story-based stuff. So droid builders. That was so cool. Which I did not understand yeah. how 3D printing worked yeah. when I started. Like, truly couldn't get my brain around it. So yeah. I'm very grateful to, like, in the course of filming droid builders for, like, the better part of a year. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I, I get this now. Like, yeah. it really was just twisting 